Alpha is a six-week course exploring the big questions of life. It's for anyone interested in discussing spirituality, God, and the Christian faith in a non-judgmental, open-minded context. Each week, there's a great meal, a short talk, and discussion in small groups. People who come to the course are from lots of different backgrounds. No faith, other faiths, brought up Christian and agnostic. Everyone is welcome. Catch up on each week's talk here. Uh, week three. For those of you who weren't able to be here last week, um, we looked at some of the objective, historical, rational reasons for putting faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, looked at the evidence particularly uh, for the resurrection. That there is actually strong historical reasoning to go, this isn't just a story that we're told that we should believe. There is actually um, hard, cold uh, fact backing this thing up Uh, and we looked at what it is to have faith and what it isn't is it just sort of blind um, or put my fingers in my ears and shut my eyes and jump or is there actually um, reason rational historical reason to put our faith uh, in Jesus if you haven't heard the talk you're very welcome um, to uh, download that from uh, the website or it's on Spotify and those sorts of things but that was objective truth This week, and for the remainder of the course, we're going to be concentrating on more subjective and personal questions. Really, how can we experience this God who is supposed to be back from the dead? Now, central to the earliest Christian preaching was not just the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, but also an experience, specifically an experience of God's love through Jesus. And any cursory reading of the New Testament will reveal that God's love is a sort of central theme of the whole thing. The most famous verse in the whole Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, is the most famous for a reason. It is central to the whole, um, uh, whole thought of uh, the New Testament. Throughout, this love of God, though, is intrinsically tied And this is somewhat strange, I think, but it's intrinsically tied to Jesus' death. Uh, Specifically, his death on the cross. And that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. This morning? This evening? (laughs) Ah, I did have a nap today, so I feel like it's about 10 in the morning. But unfortunately, I think there are some issues that I need to address uh, about the cross before we um, kick off. Firstly... For some people, the cross is such a ubiquitous symbol, so accustomed to it, that it has actually lost uh, any meaning if it ever had any in the first place for people. Lots of people wear little gold crosses as jewellery without necessarily knowing or thinking much about what that might mean. Uh, It is used to sell All Saints clothing, one of the great UK exports. Uh, All Saints clothing... With a cross. Russell Brand, who I believe is now cancelled, uh, nevertheless, Russell Brand has a tattoo of the cross on one arm uh, next to uh, the Hindu god Ganesha. He's kind of hedging his bets on the whole god thing. Uh, but for some people, the cross has become so sort of um, uh, customary, so normal, that actually it doesn't really have any meaning at all. For others, though, the opposite is true. The cross hasn't lost all meaning, rather it's been loaded with so much negative meaning that it's almost unbearable to think about. It speaks of guilt, it speaks of shame, it speaks of impossible standards. 
of authority figures belittling and demonising those who don't meet the standard. Before I was a Christian, uh, this was certainly my experience. Um, the chapel that I went to had this huge cross with uh, a figure of Jesus on it, and he looked very, very sad, and it was sort of uh, imposing in this big sort of neo-Gothic building. And all it made me think was, um, I don't want to think about it. It makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel awful, and it just seems to be surrounded by death and misery and pain. Now, I think these are big problems. And if you relate to either of those, that either the cross doesn't really mean anything and they don't really know anything about it, or it means some sort of horrible instrument of torture made to make me feel terrible, can I ask you to try and do what you can to hear what I believe is the true message of the cross, maybe for the first time or uh, for the first time in a long time this evening? Because I don't believe that the reality of the cross is either meaningless, nor is it terrible. Rather, it's the most wonderful news in the whole world. So, to hear what the cross really is, I want to start by asking you a couple of things. Firstly, consider what you believe God to be like at his core. When you think of God, what do you think of him as his, at his core? Consider God as he is first revealed at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, particularly how he relates to Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do wrong? That's a rhetorical question, do not answer it. What did they do wrong? Many people have grown up with the idea that what Adam and Eve did wrong was they were disobedient. They just did not do what they were told. Now, of course, Adam and Eve contravened God's guidance they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, of course, there is a, a huge element of disobedience to it. But is that actually the heart of it? Are we really saying that God went to all the trouble of mate, making this wonderful, incredible universe of beauty and of scope, of dandelions and honeybees and supernovas and far-off galaxies, because at his fundamental core, at what is the most true thing about God is what he really wanted was some people to obey him. What does that say about God, if that's true? He's like a strict schoolteacher. One with a bit of an authority complex, perhaps, desperate to exercise his control. What he needs is people and people to do what he wants them to do. A different, uh, but I don't think any more helpful view of Adam and Eve's sin is that the main issue was not disobedience, but pride, a desire to be equal to God. This is, in fact, in the story, what the serpent suggests. If they eat from the tree, then they will know good and evil, and then they will be like God. So are they equal? Are they guilty of going for equality with God? And if so, again, what does that tell us about what God is like to his core? He cannot have people trying to be as good as him. Is he some sort of egomaniac who demands unwavering devotion? Know your place, stay in your place, I'm God, you're not. He's angry because like some sort of Hollywood diva who doesn't get the respect he thinks he deserves, he has a hissy fit and then he curses humanity for all of time because they had the gumption to think that actually they could be like God. The truth is, the biblical picture, I believe, paints God as neither having an authority nor a superiority complex. 
He's not after obedience at all costs. And he's not threatened if people want to be more like him. What Genesis actually says about what God is like is that firstly, everything he creates is good. But it's only after he creates humanity in his image that things go from being good to being very good, excellent, wonderful, perfect in every way. God cannot help but do beautiful, wonderful things. But it is humanity that is right at the pinnacle of all of his creation. And Adam and Eve walk with God in the quiet and the cool of the evening. We weren't made to be God's obedient servants. We weren't made to massage his fragile ego. We were made to be with him in perfect relational unity in creation. We are, in fact, described as God's icons. The uh, word means image bearers. It means that we were, in some way, a little bit like him, a little bit godlike. We shared in some of his attributes. Mini-gods, we name the animals, we partake in creation. He says to Adam and Eve right at the beginning, go out and subdue the chaos outside of the garden, see what I've done, come and do it with me. So, therefore, what is at the heart of Adam and Eve's original sin? It's not arbitrary rule-breaking, and it's not grasping at divinity. Rather, the heart of Adam and Eve's sin was failing to be who they already were. They grasped at something that actually they already had. Perfect unity with God. Perfect identity as his images. But what they grasped at which they already had, they wanted independently of God, to go it alone. Ultimately, Adam and Eve's sin was to reject the love and the partnership of God. So therefore, what is God like? He is a loving, generous, abundant creator who gives humankind the pinnacle of his creation, the dignity to reject his love, to go for independence, but giving them the dignity to do that with all the consequences that then that comes with it. He didn't primarily want obedience. He didn't primarily want worship. He wanted us. And he still does. I feel like it's a little hot in here. <laughs> Is it a little hot in here? This isn't part of the talk. I'm, just, I'm genuinely asking you a question. <laughs> Is it just me? Okay, fine. All right, all right, all right. Take my shirt off. Uh, Good. Anyway, that was a little segue. We go it alone. Let's talk about sin, shall we? I know that's what you came here for. A little bit of sin. Uh, And I know that in talking about sin, in talking about what is core to us, I have drifted slightly onto uncomfortable ground. Who, like, let's be honest, who really wants to talk about sin? Part of the problem, I think, is that sin can sound to our postmodern ears a little bit out of date, can it not? For many, it's actually archaic. It's a sort of term related to a bygone era of uptight puritanicalism. A time when women should not bear their ankles lest they cause men to fall into sin and presumably have sex with their ankles or something like that. 
It's a little bit naughty but nice, actually, in our feeling. It's a risque. It's chocolate truffles. It's a hot chocolate fudge sundae. It's a little bit risque, maybe 50 gray, shades of grey. It's, it's kind of sinful, isn't it? But it's quite fun. At its most extreme, it's maybe a little darker. Frank Miller's comic book, Sin City, is of a locale whose population is continually engaged in lap dancing and extreme violence, but it's still alluring and intoxicating. It draws us in. We want to know more because sin these days is always about the pleasurable consumption of something. More specifically, I think it's the pleasurable consumption of something that we know that someone somewhere else really doesn't think we should be consuming, and that's what makes it all the more attractive. But it's not naughty in a serious way. It's just enjoyable mischievousness. And so anyone who talks about sin not being uh, a positive thing or sin being something that we should avoid is probably an uptight killjoy. He's boring, he's religious, he's almost certainly a stinking hypocrite. For all of these reasons, I'm not going to talk about sin anymore so you can relax. Because this understanding of sin, which I think is quite commonplace, is not what I mean at all. What I do mean, and more importantly, what I think Jesus means by this term that I am now no longer going to mention, is something much bigger than this. It's this, and this comes with a PG-13 health warning. It's this, the human propensity to fuck things up. Or, for brevity's sake, HPF. You, the human propensity to fuck things up. If, because we are in the X Twitter age, you wanted to go hashtag HPFU, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't know what that was. HPFU is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, it's also our active inclination to break stuff be that moods, promises, relationships, our own well being, or other people's. It's the crack at the heart of everyone. We F things up. And we're not simply talking about moral performance here. Jesus understands both our outer action and our inner motivation as all part of the same thing. For instance, unless completely psychotic, murderers don't become murderers out of nowhere. Murder proceeds from hatred in the same way that adultery proceeds from lust. It's all part of the crack at the heart of things. Both human lives and the whole universe. It's a cosmic problem, it's a social problem, and it is particularly, for our purposes, an individual problem. But, in case you are in some doubt, let me take you on an imaginary trip to the cinema. It's a cinema at the end of time. So the whole world has ended, and you are at the doors of the cinema and you are beckoned in and you walk into the cinema and you sit down in the beautiful plush red velour seat. There is no one else in the cinema. The lights begin to dim, the curtains go back on the screen and a voice comes over the announcement system and the voice says this. Good evening. Welcome to the cinema at the end of time. Tonight's showing is going to be the film of your whole life. 
from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death, everything that you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, it's all coming up on the screen right now. Sit back, relax, you've got the whole of eternity to watch it, here it comes, and then on the screen, there it is, your whole life, from your birth to your death, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, up on the screen in glorious technicolour. How would you find it? You sit through the whole thing, the lights come up at the end, and the voice comes back on and says, there's now going to be a second show. During this show, we will do exactly the same film, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done. But every single person who featured in that film is now going to watch it with you, and the doors open, and then at the bottom of the cinema, every single person you've had any interaction with, done something with, said something to, thought about, comes in and sits down next to you, and then you watch the film with them. How would you find it then? At times, if you're anything like me, I'm sure exhilarating. And at other times, deeply embarrassing. Squirming, even. The human propensity to F things up is bad news. And like any bad news, it's not very welcome. Who wants to hear about this stuff? Shouldn't we just ignore it? But actually, I want to suggest that there's some actually very good news here. Because once we've acknowledged that our HPFU does exist, we start being true to our real selves. Not the selves we'd like to be, not the selves we think we could project to other people, but our actual selves, who we really are. Taking the things wrong, taking the things seriously that we do wrong is part of taking ourselves seriously. And in doing so, what we see is that everyone, all of us, is in the same boat. We all have HPFU. So let's not avoid the discomfort and instead ask ourselves, well, what are we going to do about it? One possibility is this. We could judge ourselves against other people. We could judge ourselves against, in fact, even better, only the people we know we are less effed up than. I'm not perfect, but I'm no Hitler. I may have cheated on my girlfriend in college, but I haven't killed anyone, so I'm not that bad. Yeah, I slate people behind their back, but I'm not like that Stacy from Accounts. She's a right bitch, isn't she? It makes us feel better, doesn't it? For a little minute. And for the record, this is what all man-made religion does. The Christianity of Jesus, properly understood, I do not believe to be a religion in any way. In fact, Jesus reserves his most um, aggressive uh, attitudes towards religious people and religious attitudes wherever he sees them. Religion is not a good thing because what religion does is it judges between the good and the not so good. Those who perform and those who don't. Those who are on the right ladder to salvation, those who are on the wrong ladder. But neither religion's separation of the pure from the impure, nor our own separation of ourselves from Stacy from accounts, gets to the heart of things. They are actually just anaesthetic, aren't they? They make us feel better for a second because we're not as bad as someone else. And this is the point at which the true message of Christianity separates itself from all religious and all human judgments about goodness and morality. 
and it becomes at the same time both utterly lunatic and completely realistic. Utterly lunatic because the standard is perfection. And none of us measures up, do we? The Bible describes God as perfect. In him, no darkness whatsoever. He is pure, blinding white light. And in his son, Jesus, we see the perfect human life. Not just moral perfection, but perfectly pure motivations, perfectly pure hearts as well. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about being the right thing. The standard is not ours. It's his and it's 100%. So it's not about being a good person, whatever being a good person is. Something my children ask me all the time. Is Elon Musk a good person? I don't know, maybe. It's not about being a good person. It's about being completely perfect all the time. Utterly lunatic. And yet, completely realistic. Because if the standard is perfection and none of us measures up, then everyone fails. Every single one. Elon Musk, me, you, and all the nice people. Absolutely everyone, we are all in the same boat. So of all the things that Christianity is, it is not about gathering together all the good people to be shiny and happy with perfect teeth all the time and excluding the bad and repulsive alien ones for the very fact that Christianity sees everyone as a bit dirty. Jesus, unlike some who may purport to follow him, does not keep a register of clean and unclean. He says, you're all unclean. And so suddenly, in its utter lack of realism, Christianity becomes very realistic indeed. Christianity is a league of the guilty. You're welcome. Not guilty, of course, of all of the same things, or in the same way, or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise one another. Our human propensity to fuck things up is like a family resemblance. And so we begin to see what stabbing your colleague in the back to get on in life has in common with teasing the kid at the school gate who no one likes. Or what bombing innocent children has in common with having an affair with someone you don't even like. Not, of course, that I am saying for one second that these examples are all of the same moral value. Of course they are not. But what they are is all hewn from the same cloth, our human propensity to F things up. So what are we going to do? Does that mean we all just accept our f upness, give in to the fact that we're all imperfect, aren't we? Well, you know, I, I didn't mean to, but I did it again. And can we just get on with life? Well, no, not if we're, not, if we're going to take seriously the victims. Not if we're going to take seriously the people who've lost their lives at the hands of mass shooters. The child whose mother went out one night and is never, ever coming back. Not if we're going to take seriously the bullied kid who grew up completely lacking in any sense of self-worth. Not if we're going to take seriously the jilted lover, the bitched-about colleague, all the people we've hurt. Just saying, yeah, but we're all a bit messed up, aren't we? That's no solace to them. We can't just ask those who suffer at the hands of our HPFU to forget about the harm that we've caused them and so that we can feel better about ourselves. Where on earth is the justice in that? And what about God? 
should he just sit back in his celestial armchair, smoking his pipe, and go, ah, I don't mind. What sort of God would that make him? Unmoved by human trafficking. Unconcerned by the child who is told that they are a huge disappointment. God sitting there, smoking his pipe, not giving a damn. If we are all, though, in the same HPFU boat, isn't the question, what will God do with any of us? Will he just leave us to flounder? Perhaps he already has. Could you blame him if he had? Let me tell you what he actually does. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is born in a feeding trough amongst some animals and some shit. He lives a life of no material wealth. He doesn't have a home or a shelter. He spends a large amount of his time with the first century equivalent of paedophiles, crack addicts, morally bankrupt lobbyists and thieves. Those so clearly exhibiting the human propensity to F things up that they don't even bother trying to cover it up anymore. As well, of course, as with those who still can't even admit it to themselves. And amongst these people, Jesus of Nazareth teaches about a life of such impossible standards. Turn the other cheek. Not just no adultery, but no lust either. Not just no murder, but no hatred too. Love your enemy. Actually do good to those people who persecute you, who make your life a living hell. That everyone is left with the question, well, how on earth can anyone live like that? And then Jesus goes and does, lives exactly like that. He heals the sick as well, and he feeds the hungry, and he calms the storm, and he befriends the unlovable, and he stands up to injustice as if to go, yeah, I really can. You see, in Jesus, there is none of the sin. Just perfect, pure, wonderful, glorious humanity. Jesus is what we were all supposed to be. And yet, he does not distance himself from the brokenness and the corruption. In fact, he throws himself into it. But that's not all. Because if that was all, he would be saying, you're effed up, but I love you and don't worry, I'm here. And also, don't worry too much about the effed up bit. At least I love you. That's not enough for him, and it shouldn't be enough for us. It's not enough because God cannot belittle the problem like this. It's miles too serious, and he cannot ignore it. It's too destructive. It causes too much pain. Instead, what he does is he deals with it. He destroys sin. He disrobes sin of all its power. He exposes sin for all its ugliness, the ugly reality of it, the way in which we try to keep it hidden so that no one would see it. And Jesus goes, no, I see it all. I see it all and I am showing the whole world how terrible it is. And then he kills it off once and for all. Jesus is like the lightning rod for all sin for all of time. All individual, all corporate, all global, systemic, nationalistic, all cosmic sin, all of it, all your sin, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, all of it, everything I have done, all of it, every single little, tiny little ounce, no stone left unturned, he takes it all on himself. And it's nailed to that ugly Roman cross on that lonely hill outside Jerusalem, and the weight of it crushes him. Pure, perfect God. 
He experiences the one thing that his divinity should not ever experience, an excruciating, lonely death. The divine does not die, and yet Jesus, the divine, does die because he is weighted down with all the power of evil on him. And in the midst of it all, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the love of God. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and laid his life down for us. You see, at Calvary, God in Jesus frees us all once and for all from the power. From the power of sin that robs us of the life, that robs us of him. Jesus is the only one capable of doing this because he is fully human. He is there in all his humanity, representing us, identifying with us, being one like us and carrying all our brokenness. We are there with him, but we are gloriously not experiencing what he does. And because he is fully God, he is also able to represent God in all his perfection, all his pure goodness and righteousness, all of his justice. And at the cross, he destroys it all. He gives it what it deserves and he opens his arms wide to us so that we might be reconciled to him. No longer having any barrier between us and God. He does what no one else could do, bringing heaven and earth together again. So that we might be returned to a state as it was always intended in the Garden of Eden. That we might walk with our God in perfect relational unity. This is why Jesus cries out, it is finished. He did what no one else could do. At the cross, God's love wins. That is the message. That is why the first century uh, writers of the New Testament go on and on and on and on about God's love. It is the message of the Bible. God is love. He loves us. He could not bear the separation any longer. There will never be any more of a powerful, perfect display of unconditional love. Um, Consider it like this. Imagine this light up here. That is God. Here am I. Here are you. This is you. Made in the image of God. And you are fully alive. Emotionally alive, intellectually alive, physically alive. Here you are. This is what sin does. No longer are we connected to the beauty and the wonder of God. Here is Jesus. Human. Physically alive, emotionally alive, sexually alive. He is alive. But unlike us and unlike anyone else, without sin. No separation between him and his father. This is what happens on the cross. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, all the ways in which you have corrupted yourself, other people, every little instance of it taken on him so that we go free and we are returned to the relationship we were always intended for. That's the message of the cross. What does it mean? I'll end with this. Firstly, it means God is love. God isn't angry. 
you never, ever need to doubt his love for you ever again. Not once, not ever. The cross stands as the defining moment in all history that says God is for you. He could not bear to be separated for you, from you for any moment longer. Secondly, it means this. And I say this with all love and affection towards my American brothers and sisters. You guys know how to work. You know how to work really hard. What the cross says is we do not need to pay our way to prove ourselves to God. We do not need to work to show him how wonderful a little boy or little girl we are. In the light of the message of the cross, our attempts to be good boys and good girls, to impress God, to work for him, to make amends, to try and deal with our sinfulness are utterly futile. We're never going to be good enough anyway. But he is. And he's already done it for all of us. Such is the grace of God that he says, be free, be free, child of God. From all religious, all legalistic, all moral obligations. Set yourself free because he has already done it for you. He has set yourself, he set you free. There is nothing, as the writer uh, of that book says, that you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. Nothing. Not one thing. And thirdly and finally, it means that change is possible. All our hurts and our pain, our scars and our losses, all your regrets, all of that. Many of us, the truth is, go through life carrying these things around with us. The shame of things that we have done, that we've involved ourselves in. If we could just have our time back, I just wouldn't do it. The pain we've caused to other people and ourselves and the pain that other people have caused us, we drag it around with us. Others of us will go through the whole of life with unhealed wounds. The result of our own or other people's effed upness. Now, can I say self-help? Medication, therapy, these are all important things. I believe in all of them. But no amount of these will ever get to the heart of the problem. They deal with the symptoms. The problem is a spiritual one. Only Jesus, only God can deal with the actual heart of sin. And he has done so and he does so for us over and over again by pouring out complete forgiveness for you removing every last scrap of shame and bringing his supernatural healing to all the hurt. As we often say, Jesus is like the trash man of the world. He goes around and he takes your stinking bags of garbage that you drag around with you through life. He takes those, he puts them in the back of his truck and he takes them to the great incinerator in the sky and he burns it all up forever so you do not need to carry it around with you anymore. He is the trash man of the world, that's his job. He loves to do it, why don't you just give it to him? And doing that, we can know ourselves to look full into the face of the Father and be reunited with him once and for all. 
Um, let me end with this. There is uh, in um, the book of Isaiah this passage. He says, come let us reason together. Let us use our brains. Let us go through the logic of this. Let us reason together. We're not just doing an emotional thing here. We are reasoning together. We are going, this does make sense, doesn't it? Come, let us reason together. Let us settle our thoughts on the reality of the universe. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. Though they are like red, like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. That's the message of the cross. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far Jesus has removed all your sin from you. Is that far enough? I hope so.